Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 2. We'll look at verses 29 through 35 this morning. We looked at the same passage last week. Um, We're going to read a shorter section of it this week. So, um, recently, people in our uh, society have been uh, mortified and outraged by comments made by Christians about, uh, in particular, the uh, sinfulness of homosexuality. And um, I'm not going to talk about that situation much. I'm not going to address all the dynamics of the situation, how things might have been said differently with a different spirit or maybe different content or um, whether, uh, you know, the laws of the land should be in the favor of somebody or another or freedom of speech and whatnot. It's not really relevant uh, this morning. Uh, This morning I'm interested in um, how some social commentators are saying, because of this as an example, some social commentators are saying that we're living in a world where the church is increasingly viewed as strange. The church is increasingly viewed as strange. People are apparently increasingly scandalized by the, the views and the declarations of the church. Um, people seem to be shocked that anyone in America would think it's okay to call another person's behavior wrong or sinful. Um, the big taboo is calling things taboo. Right? Um, we, we have somewhat successfully created a society where you're generally safe from the blunt accusation of being wrong. Right? You're generally safe from the blunt accusation of being wrong, where your values and your beliefs can usually just go unchallenged. Um, this means we've protected the thoughts of our hearts from threats. Right? We've protected the thoughts of our hearts from threats. <clears throat> but every once in a while, someone says something that you're not supposed to say, like, hey, that's sin. <laughs> right? Or, hey, that's wrong. And uh, every, everybody gets riled up when that happens, and the perpetrator gets dragged out into the public square and humiliated. Um, I think I would rephrase the social commentary. It's not that we're living in a world where the church is increasingly viewed as strange. I think it's that um, we're living in a world where people feel increasingly comfortable openly expressing hostility to the church. Uh, People are becoming increasingly comfortable expressing their hostility to the church out in the open for for the threat that the church poses to the thoughts of our hearts. Um, we need to realize that this is nothing new. People are going to be upset at us for being the church. Uh, people are going to be upset at uh, particularly Jesus for the threat that he poses. Things could get dramatically worse, and it still shouldn't surprise us. Right? This is exactly what we should expect because of the life and message of Jesus, which has the effect of polarizing people because he exposes what's inside of them. And uh, at the end of the day, we should realize it's going to be all right even if we encounter this increasing hostility, this increasing openly uh, expressed hostility toward us uh, for being the church. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. Father, it's a 
can be a frightening thing for us to think that Jesus uh, exposes what's going on inside of us, that you know everything about the thoughts of our hearts, our intentions, our desires, all the secret places inside of us that uh, we bury even from ourselves, from our own awareness. But as we've prayed earlier, uh, your word being living and active, it truly exposes everything inside of our souls. And so we're here to stand before your word. We're here to listen to it. And we pray that we would be shaped by it, that we would be able to receive and hear your word without uh, gnashing our teeth at you. And that's a work that only you can do by your spirit who's inside of us, uh, making us willing to receive your word. So we pray for that help right now as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Simeon said to uh, the parents of Jesus as they were in the temple, uh, he, he prayed this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So a lot of times we look at this passage and what Simeon is saying here to Mary, and uh, we meditate on what Mary, Jesus' mother, must have been uh, thinking or feeling at this prophecy and how um, inevitably, some 30 years later, um, she would feel when her beloved son was mocked and tortured and crucified and murdered before her very eyes. Um, those are hard things for us to come to grips with, but that's what it means when Simeon says that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary was going to hurt like no other mother uh, ever hurt, like no mother should ever hurt at seeing the, the, uh, her beloved son killed. Uh, she was going to hurt that way because of her relationship to Jesus. And that's, that's all true. Uh, these meditations about Mary and her motherhood and uh, the, the close connection and the sword that pierced her soul at Jesus' crucifixion, uh, that's all true, and it's hard to imagine, but we should look at why it's true. Why is it uh, so painful? Why did this happen? Um, why would the sword pierce Mary? Why would her son be so ruthlessly and finally opposed? Uh, and it says that Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many. He was appointed for a sign that is opposed. He would be a sign. He would represent something that would be opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Right? So it was no mistake. He was appointed for this. Jesus uh, met the opposition that he did, and he was intended to do that. He was sent into the world for that very reason. He was sent. He was appointed to be a sign that would encounter opposition. He was meant to stand for something that would get him attacked. That was deliberate on God's part. And it would have the effect of causing some to fall and others to rise. And it would be linked to revealing and exposing what's going on inside of us. That's all here in these few verses. 
Very simply, God sent Jesus into the world to show us what's in our hearts, knowing full well that when he did that, it would make us insanely, murderously angry. Um, The presence of the Son of God among us as a perfect human being, the presence of Jesus Christ, reveals, it, it flushes out the thoughts of our hearts in a way that brings about the fall of some and the exaltation of others, the rise of others. Uh, Jesus is the great polarizer because his presence is a direct challenge to our self-centeredness. If you've seen the movie, the, the third in the Lord of the Rings series, The Return of the King, when Denethor He's the the lord and steward of Gondor. He's kind of the temporary king, um, as it were, as the kingdom is awaiting the return of its true king. And uh, word was going around about that true king, Aragorn, right? Uh, The true heir and the fact that he was coming back to Gondor and word reaches Denethor, the steward. And Denethor is mad with power. He resolutely will not give up his sham lordship over the kingdom. What is right and true is no matter to him. does not matter, and in his madness, he even sends his good son, uh, Faramir, off to certain death without a care. The challenge of the true king's claim exposed Denethor's tyranny, and his misery eventually led him to take his own life, In Matthew's gospel, at the beginning of Jesus' life, we have an account of uh, a crazy, mad, evil tyrant, the King Herod, who heard of the birth of Jesus, heard of the coming of the true king, the promised king of God's people, and Herod perceived this for what it was. It was a threat to his power. The birth of Jesus revealed the thoughts of his heart. Now everybody could see what was going on inside of Herod's heart, And what was inside of Herod was a self-centeredness that was so strong that he ordered all the male infants and toddlers who were two years old and under in Bethlehem to be massacred in order to secure his position of power. Jesus revealed that. Jesus revealed that by coming into the world. His birth, his presence, set off Herod in a murderous rage because Herod knew what Jesus meant. He knew what Jesus' birth signified. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. God himself in the flesh. He's come to claim what is rightfully his. He's come to claim this whole world. He's come to claim you and to claim me as his own. And it's a claim that uh, just outrages selfish people like Herod. Um, But that kind of self-centeredness doesn't just exist in the heart of uh, kings and dictators, right? It exists inside all of us. You don't have to be a king to be a tyrant. Um, Peter Lockhart said that um, Christian thinkers have defined tyranny as the use of power to advance one's own interests rather than the common good. We apply that pretty easily to dictators, and we've got several examples of dictators in the world right now and throughout history But doesn't that pretty much describe the way we use our power? It's the use of power to advance our interests rather than the interests of others. Uh, Whatever power we have, whatever strength we have, whatever control we have, whatever influence we might have, 
We use it for our own interests. We advance our own interests through the exertion of force if we can. If we can, we'll do it by force or through usually more subtle intellectual manipulations or emotional manipulations or just by vainly shouting and scaring others like our children because we can. What are they going to do about it? We're bigger than them. If you're, uh, if you're committed to your self, if that's where your ultimate allegiance lies, then it just makes sense to actually do what Herod did if you can. Right? You should enslave or destroy all threats to yourself, to your self-centered self. Jesus is the biggest threat there is, so we better just kill him off. Right? Nowadays, we can get away with being much more subtle when it comes to Jesus, right? Um, just ignoring Jesus generally works. Ignoring him and his claims. Even deceiving ourselves into thinking that, you know, we're actually not self-centered at all, right? Or at least not very much. So Jesus' claim wouldn't really be too big of a threat to somebody like me because I live for other people, right? We're so self-centered that we successfully convince ourselves that we're not. But if you really encounter Jesus, he will reveal what's inside of you. And, and that, uh, theologically speaking, is called total depravity. <laughs> right? Total depravity. When people describe this total depravity, we always get the caveat right up front. Well, we're not all as evil as we could be, right? And then usually Hitler gets cited. He's about as evil as it gets. We're not all that bad. That's not what total depravity means. Hitler was like Herod on steroids, right? Uh, forcibly eradicating all opposition, but I think it's just as bad when we're able to fool ourselves into believing that we're not like Hitler. I think that's pretty bad. What Jesus exposes about us is that really, if we were in the same position, we'd do the same thing. And in fact, um, doesn't it seem worse to you that we're able to cover up the selfishness the black holes in our hearts. That we're able to cover that up. But Jesus won't let that go on forever. He pulls back the cover. He reveals the thoughts of your heart, which are these. Um, I'm going to throw kind of a bad poem that I wrote at you. Um, just kind of tracing the thoughts of our hearts. I am somebody. Because I am lovable. Because I'm good enough because I can be good because I want to be good because I have to be good because I want love because I'm not loved because I disbelieve God because I despise God because I want to be God. You can see how the thoughts of our hearts are exposed by Christ. I am supreme. Just by being me, I'm special. I must be better than others. I must be supreme. Yet I sense somewhere that I'm really not, so I've got to secure my supremacy in any way possible, while, of course, simultaneously convincing myself that I'm not actually doing that. That's how our 
heart's work, and we especially like to use our good works to simultaneously feed and hide our selfishness. Right, Thomas Merton said that, uh, he asked the question, who can do good things without seeking to taste in them some sweet distinction from the common run of sinners in this world? Who can do good things without trying to taste in them the fact that I'm different from everybody else who's a sinner? But all these thoughts will be like, uh, like waves breaking against a fortress. You cannot overthrow God himself. And one day, your self-centeredness will ruin you. It will ruin you. Jesus doesn't just reveal the thoughts of your hearts. He threatens them. His presence says, your values are wrong. Your thoughts are wrong, and they cannot stand that way. As Cheryl read in our Old Testament reading from Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide, divide the spoil with the proud. And uh, James and Peter also quote the Proverbs. And they say very clearly, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So don't just heap on all this talk about self-centeredness to grind you into dust, right, to... Um, to beat you over the head with it. Uh, Tim Keller says, as long as we think we're not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. We've got to come to a place where we, we really can say with Paul, I'm the chief of sinners because I know better than anybody else what's inside of my heart and I really don't even know everything that's inside of my heart. It really is that bad. Right? But in the end, the thoughts of all hearts will be revealed when we stand exposed before the judge and before his word. It will be the fall and the rise of many. The proud, those who are full of self, they will fall before his righteousness, before his true claims as king. And the humble, those who are empty of self, who cling to Jesus and his mercy, they'll be exalted. By his grace, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It'll be a fearful and glorious day, a day of dread and a day of joy because of the one who is appointed for the rise and fall of many. And the good news is that one, the coming judge, is the same one who already came and he gave himself up for the sake of his enemies to free us from our self centeredness and from the condemnation that we deserve because of our self centeredness. He died not only to forgive you all of your selfishness, but to kill that part of you and make you free from it. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then your, your self-centered self is dead. It died on the cross with him. You're free of it, and it no longer defines you. It no longer has anything to say about you in God's sight. And in Christ, in his resurrection... You've been raised to new life. And so you're a new man or a new woman. And the thoughts of your heart are no longer proud. They are no longer fixed on yourself. In Christ, you have been set free for humility and for love of other. Uh, Tim Keller has a great little book, uh, booklet called The Freedom 
of self-forgetfulness. Doesn't sound good? It sounds right. The, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Because humility and, and true love, it's, uh, it's not just thinking less of yourself and uh, thinking better of others. It's just thinking of yourself less. You just don't do it anymore. Doesn't that sound good? You can't achieve that on your own. You can't. Self-forgetfulness and true humility and true love is absolutely a miracle of God's grace. Clifford Williams has a good book called The Singleness of Heart, and he says, those who forget themselves must, of course, also forget that they are doing so. For once the thought that they are forgetting themselves slips into their consciousness, they're liable to congratulate themselves for it. And you know what that's like. We need a real change. We need a a change deep inside of us at a level where we just can't reach ourselves. We can't fix it ourselves. But Jesus Christ can change us on that level by giving us his own spirit. He gives us his own spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of love within us, working from the inside, fixing the thoughts of our hearts on Jesus instead of ourselves. And that's what frees us from our self-orientation. And because of him... We can lose ourselves in Christ because of the Spirit. We can really lose ourselves in Christ in a good way. Lose yourself. Um, The Spirit is real. He's a subject who acts uh, according to his own will. He acts in our lives. We can't control him. He is and he does what we cannot be and cannot do, and he does it inside of us by his grace. He sets us free to love like God loves, truly. He comes to you and he fixes your eyes on Christ in contemplation of his beauty, his majesty, his worth, his work. And unlike the autonomy that um, you've got to protect or secure for yourself, the the autonomy that you, uh, you feel is threatened which absolutely will be stripped away one day. Your relationship to Jesus Christ and the fullness of God found in him, your unity with him will never be stripped away. You have every reason for joy that cannot be touched, it cannot be taken away, but it's alien to you. Its ground is outside of you. It's in the person of Jesus, and that's actually really good news because that means that you can't do anything to lose it, right? You can't do anything to mess up your relationship with God. That's actually really good news, but that's why you need to do what Paul says in Colossians. Set your minds on things that are above on on Christ, right? Where Christ is seated at God's right hand. That's the work of the Spirit of Christ in you, and it's there that the thoughts of your heart are supposed to be. So think about him. Read the scriptures, right? We're at the beginning of a new year. Commit to reading through the Bible this year. Uh, I think Herman's doing it in 90 days. Keep up with him if you can, (laughs) you know. Um, get a good book exploring Jesus, just his person, just what theologians have thought about him right, and his work in the world. Just think about who God is. You know, Presbyterians are really good at reading theology and talking about theology and liking theology, but for some reason, the areas of theology that we steer toward aren't just theology proper, which is God himself or Christology, Jesus Christ, who he is, right? Think about those things rather than getting into debates about 
end times or the process of our salvation. Those things are good, but we're here to turn the thoughts of our hearts to Jesus Christ, to God himself. In Christ, God frees you to praise God and not yourself. God frees you to love others truly, even as God loves. Again, Keller says, true gospel humility means that I stopped connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stopped thinking about myself. In Christ, God frees you to think about others, about their sufferings, and about their joys. Even if those people aren't reciprocating your love, even if those people laugh at you for being a Christian, even if they're persecuting you, God frees you to be able to love them and care about their sufferings and their joys. Because people won't reciprocate your love. They won't, and they will persecute you. People hate the church because they hate Jesus. Jesus warned us about that. People oppose what he signifies. They hate the claim of God's kingship in their life. They hate the consequences that they know are coming for breaking God's law. They hate the threat to their autonomy. This is nothing new. It's always been there. Jesus has always polarized people like this. And as people who trust him, who love him, who are united to him, who point to him, who await his return expectantly, we also will polarize people because we are a sign of his kingdom and so we will be opposed for being that sign. People will accuse you of hatred and intolerance, whether that's true or not. People will ridicule Christians in an attempt to uh, minimize their influence. We don't have to listen to you because you're stupid. People will seek to put Christianity on the shelf with all the other world religions as just another easily dismissible kind of myth. People will tie Christians to posts in stadiums and publicly machine gun them down and then send their families into concentration camps where they die from labor, hard labor, or uh, starvation. It's happening in North Korea right now. Just for having Bibles, they'll do this. Bibles that proclaim God's word that undermine the tyranny of their dictatorship. If people were able to be honest with themselves, if the thoughts of their hearts were truly revealed, then they would acknowledge they would prefer Christians shamed or gone, dead. And you need to realize that apart from the grace of God moving in your life, that would be the thoughts of your heart too. And you need to realize that this is what you should expect from others and don't take it personally. It's not a threat to you. It doesn't change a thing about God's acceptance of you, people's hatred of you, people's rejection of you. And it shouldn't change your faith, your trust in Christ, your devotion, or your mission. Jesus' presence brings out the worst in people to their downfall. And his work brings about the best in people. It brings about the exaltation of those who humble themselves before the true and rightful king. So which is it going to be for you? What are the thoughts of your hearts? Let's pray.
Father, we are reluctant even to examine our own hearts. and uh, We know that you expose what's going on inside of us not to uh, just make us hurt, but to give us grace. And so we pray that as you help us through your spirit and word to look at ourselves honestly, that what we find there uh, would not discourage us or, dis- or demoralize us and um, make us doubt our relationship with you. We pray that as you help us look at ourselves, you would help us to look at ourselves in light of your grace, in light of Jesus, in light of our union with him, that uh, even though we are sinners and when we look at ourselves apart from you, that's all we see. You sent your son into the world to die for us, to forgive us our sins, to change us into his own likeness, to unite us with yourselves in glory forever, and that all of this is true uh, by your grace. We pray that you would fix our eyes on yourself, that you would help us to praise you and not ourselves, that you would help us just to realize the change that's been brought about through the person and work of Jesus in history in a way that um, we know we have a relationship with you that can never change. And we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us in our faith now as we come to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.